Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Also coming to you on Arut Sheva, streaming around the world, Israel, national news slash radio. And welcome to another Thursday morning of political talk. Uh, something we're going to do, we did a little bit differently, is, and we had this uh, in the last couple of weeks, going kind of in-depth in some themes as opposed to keeping up with the, uh, with the Trump news every week and Sarah Palin and the sensationalism. But one thing I want to start doing on the show is having occasional segments with a little bit of a deep dive into various issues. And as everybody knows, we've been we, – we are focused, even though we try and be national, we try and focus a little bit on New York state government and local government. Uh, possibly you can't just cover the presidential race and the presidential primary to the exclusion of everything else out there. So I'm pleased and we're privileged to have on for uh, – hopefully a wonderful interview with Dr. Gerald Benjamin. He's the Associate Vice President for Regional Engagement at SUNY New Paltz up in the Hudson Valley. He is a longtime uh, expositor and student of New York State government. He also served in the Ulster County Legislature, spending some time as chairman of the legislature. Uh, and so is an absolute expert when it comes to all things uh, political in New York and is kind of the go-to guy for opinion as well as uh, expertise when it comes to New York state government uh, st on a state and local level. Dr. Benjamin, welcome to Spin Class. Happy to be here. Very kind introduction. Thank you. Well, your reputation precedes you. And uh, one thing, certainly according to our listeners, especially those who aren't in New York, uh, are, are hearing about New York these days, not just because of Donald Trump, but they're also hearing the words corruption. And we had this uh, interesting unfortunately, I guess, infamous uh, phenomenon of both two legislative leaders being arrested, tried, and convicted during the same legislative session, during the same year, uh, hasn't really... New York has had some episodes with regard to corruption. We, we know about it, but this would seem to take the cake to a certain degree. So my question for you is, well, is Albany irreparably broken? Well, it's not irreparably broken. The, the, uh, certainly the events you talked about were unprecedented. But we've had a, a, a long uh, uh, string of, uh, of indictments and convictions over the last uh, decade or so. Citizens Union website has them all listed, and, and they're available. There's 33 or 30, uh, 32 or 33, as I recall. But if you look at the uh, comparative research, corruption is uh, widespread in, 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 in state government in the United States, and New York is, in fact, not regarded as the worst as the worst case. So, uh, and, and we have. Uh, so we have experienced corruption. We have uh, uh, we have uh, remedies that people are proposing, and uh, they're under discussion now. We've always uh, tried to address these uh, these problems in New York. We've had a historic uh, need to do that, but we're not alone in that. New Jersey, Illinois, Massachusetts, uh, there are many examples, and you can go through the country and find examples. So. Let's uh, so let's talk about maybe some of the structural problems or what are perceived as the structural problems with regard to Albany, opaque uh, decision making process, the uh, the lack of committee hearings, lack of transparency, campaign finance. I mean, what stands in the way of cleaning up the the cleaning up the mess in Albany? Well, fundamentally, the. Uh to me, the the remedy for ethics is not punishment, uh, stronger and stronger punishment as a disincentive. To me, the the remedy for ethical 
problems is to elect ethical people. And we can talk about uh, structural issues in two ways. We can talk about uh, structural issues with regard to the political culture of the state, which is, I guess, not structural, but uh, contextual. And then we can talk about uh, things like the, the way we finance elections and the way we uh, district our legislatures and, and so on. Let's, let's take the second first and then come back to corruption. We did a redistricting uh, uh, amendment to the Constitution recently. Uh, some have argued better than nothing. We don't know if it will work very well. But it essentially safeguards the interests of the, of the major parties and, in my view, of the incumbents to a degree that would be less desirable than if we had, we had taken a stronger, a stronger path, uh, like the one, for example, taken in California. So that's one. Second, campaign finance is fundamentally uh, problematic in New York, as it is uh, in many states, and uh, we have virtually no regulation of campaign finance. We have... Uh, I happen to be, I, I'm a rather conservative person, but I happen to believe in public financing of elections. Uh, uh, the Supreme Court's uh, point of view about uh, campaign finance has uh, limited the degree to which we can constrain uh, private money in, in politics, and I think it's an unfortunate the convergence of uh, free speech in the Supreme Court's uh, interpretation with uh, free spending is, is an unfortunate convergence. But we have to function within that frame, at least for now. So I'd say campaign finance reform uh, to, and redistricting to make elections more competitive would lead to greater accountability. I also think that we have to think about the recruitment pool and the recruitment methods for candidacies and uh, uh and in an interesting way, uh, when we had stronger political parties, we had a, a recruitment pool that was broader and deeper than, than what we have now, where we have more or less self-selection, self-recruitment, and self-financing as uh, fundamental uh, characteristics of our, of our uh, process. So those are the process points. Now, if you want to stop me, stop me. I'm a professor, and I talk in 50-minute increments. <laughs> sure. Well, we're talking to Dr. Gerald Benjamin of uh, SUNY New Paltz. Distinguished Professor of Government, uh, Director uh, formerly of the Rockefeller Institute of Government in Albany, as well as a former local elected official in Ulster County. Uh, Dr. Benjamin, do you believe in the full concept of the full-time legislature, the the pay raise uh, that the legis that would be commensurate, I guess, with go moving to a full-time, the outside income? issue that everybody identifies. I, you said before that having an ethical legislature starts with having ethical people. Uh, that wouldn't necessarily change if we move to a full-time or part-time uh, in the legislature. Well, uh, the, 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 the issue is, you know, as, as with most things, more, more complicated than it appears on the surface. When, if you live in uh, northern New York, the current compensation for a legislature uh, with the expenses and with the uh, Payments in lieu of, uh, of expenses that, that accrue to leadership is quite can allow you to have a quite comfortable life. If you live on Long Island, you can't pay the mortgage. So uh, the level of compensation is, is is a significant issue, especially in the suburban and, and urban uh, parts of the state, downstate parts of the state. And if you want people to devote themselves to a job, you have to pay them commensurate with their responsibilities. And uh, the state legislature is an organization that's overseeing a budget. It approaches $150 billion a year, a little less than $150 billion a year. So uh, that's a big responsibility. And uh, people don't want to hear that somehow, especially driven by the concern about corruption, but that's a fact. That's a fact of the matter. And uh, if you compensate people uh, commensurate with their responsibility, albeit relatively 
modestly, um, they'll have to be paid more so they can live on the income, and then you can start talking about your expectations of their performance. Regarding constraining outside income, uh, we talk about earned versus unearned income, and uh, and unearned income, you know, income from uh, investments and so on, would give an advantage uh, to people seeking office who uh, who can say they're working full time but are effectively subsidized by their by their previously gathered wealth. So it's a little bit of a concern, but I would say uh, the evils of w- the way we're doing it now exceed the evils of doing it in an alternative way. One thing I worry about is cutting people off from the economy, professionalizing politics to an even greater extent, uh, and uh, creating a political class. But that risk is uh, one I'd rather take than the risk we now take with corruption. And I forgot to mention our sponsor uh, in the beginning. Uh, we are sponsored, proud to be sponsored by the S4 Group. Rummy, you always got to tell me about the sponsorship, most important thing. Uh, the S4 Group, a full-service government relations, at public relations, and advocacy lobbying organization with offices around the country. If you want to, if you want to subscribe to their weekly political newsletter, go to s4grp.com and scroll down. You can do that very, very easily. Very informative newsletter that I'm happy to collaborate on that. And we're here in spin class with Dr. Jericho Benjamin of SUNY New Paltz, a student of New York State government. Uh, let's talk for a second about the big the big theme of this new year in New York State, particularly with Governor Andrew Cuomo, seems to be spending on big, big ticket infrastructure projects. Uh, what? How is New York going to pay for all these projects? I think we're up to like $100 billion in potential projects uh, that are floating out there. Uh, uh, Jerry Benjamin, uh, what do you think about Governor Cuomo's well, proposed Well, first, first of all, the numbers are interesting. They're, they're, uh, they're multi-year numbers. So we're talking about a single-year budget and multi-year numbers. That's, that's the first thing. So $100 billion in 10 years is different than $100 billion in one year, even. Certainly even, is. Uh, quite, quite an elementary point. Second point is uh, the governor has been less than fully forthcoming regarding how he's going to finance these projects. He, he has said that he that he's not going to finance them fully out of uh, out of state borrowing. He he has uh, one-time funds coming from legal settlements in the multi-billion-dollar uh, range, and uh, certainly most public finance experts think that one-time funds should be spent for one-time expenditures like uh, capital improvements or capital or capital uh, actions having to do with. Uh, train and commuter rail in, in downstate or uh, bridge development in, uh, in the Hudson Valley or road improvement in uh, upstate. Parenthetically, most, most people who live downstate don't think of roads as mass transit, but for us in, in the rural and suburban areas, roads are our mass transit, so they require a certain degree of consideration in, in, the, same, in the same or in a parallel manner with the subways and, and buses and uh, and uh, tunnels and so on in downstate area, but so the way the governor is going to pay for all this remains uh, uh, interesting and, and a little bit uh, unclear. Uh, he has he's 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 he's, he's, he's evinced a certain expectation that New York City would do a greater share on the capital side, especially for the subway system that it has in the past, and. Uh, He's also said that on certain operating areas, for example, education. and So that's an interesting conversation, uh, the relative fiscal uh, responsibilities of the city relative to the state. But uh, it's a fair question, and people are asking it uh, both in, in specific regarding specific projects and in general. Uh, 
on to a good point. I don't know what the answer to that is. He hasn't in, indicated uh, how he's going to achieve these outcomes. Well, actually, there are two questions that come out of, of your comments here. Uh, one, I'd like to just highlight what's seemingly the governor's success in moving the Tappan Zee Bridge project forward. Clearly, you can see that the Tappan Zee Bridge is being built, and it's happening uh, after decades. It's there, right. Of, it's very much there. <laughs> it's very much there, exactly. Uh, now, he, he moved that forward, and, and I think the Governor Cuomo, to his credit, is saying we have to keep thinking big. We can't always be constrained by the naysayers. Uh, so that's one uh, one thing. The other thing, and maybe tackle this together because Tappan Zee Bridge is kind of on the cusp of it, is that upstate-downstate divide – uh, when you talk about some of these big mass transit projects and upstate uh, wanting to get its fair share, or, or I guess just the upstate economy in general, always seeming to get short shrift when it comes to New York and policymakers uh, uh, with with uh, with regard to upstate cities or even rural areas, uh, not necessarily or, or not necessarily benefiting from the boom downstate. Well, uh, the governor's invested up in upstate and his economic development policy, his competitive economic development policy, which has been uh, criticized, has, has focused on regional uh, decision-making and recommendations. And so there, Buffalo has been uh, a poster child for his concern about upstate. And uh, so uh, I don't think he's neglected. I think he's been very uh, forceful and focused with regard to upstate. But I don't think that... Uh, uh, and and the capital needs downstate are massive. If you we you know the new train tunnel that we need uh, downstate, the rehabilitation of the subways, the protection against uh, extreme weather events, the, uh, uh, the the LaGuardia Airport plan. I, I just came through Kennedy Airport, and I will tell you that uh, it, it, it it just doesn't provide the facilities at a level comparable with any European airport I've recently been in, or any airport in South America I've recently been, or Asia. So well, we have real challenges, and, and the issue is finding a balance. And one of the fears that we have upstate is, you know, the, the, the assembly is, is, is uh, led by a New York City uh, 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 elected official. The uh, state government, the chief executive is from downstate. All the statewide officials are, except for the lieutenant governor, are downstate, and she's not a, 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 independently elected. And only the Senate is has significant uh, suburban and, and rural uh, voice, and and that that voice is uh, likely to be subsumed by demographic and social change. So we we worry about that and uh, and uh, being treated equitably. It requires a governor uh, con- conscious attention to the to the need for balance and distribution. If you don't have advocacy in the legislature, for sure. Well, upstate continues to lose population. Uh, when, especially compared to downstate, New York State continues to lose population uh, when compared to the rest of the country. But so it's inevitable that more and more of the political power will be concentrated in the downstate uh, city, New York City, and its suburbs. Well, New York State does not lose population. And New York State is growing more slowly than the country is. New York State is having a massive population replacement process as people come in from outside the country and from outside New York and people who are New Yorkers move out to often to the uh, to the south and southwest so there is that um, the dynamic uh, renewal of the upstate economy is very possible and very desirable and uh, 
that that effort properly done and properly achieved will enrich the entire state. So uh, the enlightened self-interest of downstate elected officials is to pay attention. However, not everybody is enlightened. And we're talking to Dr. Gerald Benjamin of SUNY New Paltz, a keen observer and student of New York State government, distinguished professor of the State University of New York. Uh, if we might, if you don't mind, uh, let's uh, switch gears for a second. Uh, one thing, you know, particularly on this show and our listenership, uh, and I've heard you speak about this as well, is the one thing of interest is the incredible growth of the Orthodox and Hasidic community within the Hudson Valley. Uh, it's refers specifically to Rockland, Orange, Sullivan counties, and the conflict that that has brought about in various areas of local government vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the, uh, the county government, municipal government, and the like. Uh, you know, maybe we could just start off this part of the conversation commenting more generally uh, from your perspective as a longtime uh, Ulster County resident, uh, what you've seen and, you know, where, uh, you know, where this conflict is headed potentially. And, ha you know, maybe uh, we'll talk about how it might best, uh, might <clears throat> excuse me, it might best be solved. Well, the, I'm massively interested in that. I've been, uh, I've got some work that I've been writing on that, uh, although I've not published on it. So that's a great question for me to have a chance to talk about. Um, you know, we've created uh, governments in the in the Hudson Valley uh, that are entirely uh, uh, that are responsive to to uh, Hasidic uh, requirements. The, the village of Kiryat Joel was created as a Hasidic village. The uh, school district of Kiryat Joel was created as a Hasidic uh, school district and uh, had to be recreated several times by the uh, New York State Legislature because the Supreme Court litigation uh, that went to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, reversed the state legislative action a couple of times. So there's that. There's uh, Hasidic communities that are growing very fast because of, of uh, high birth rates and uh, in-migration from downstate. And uh, the needs they have that are uh, that, that, that place uh, requests and uh, pressures upon adjacent communities. So most recently in Kiryat Joel, we've had a uh, conflict rising from a desire to annex adjacent territory, which was partly, so far partly achieved, and there's some litigation following on that. And uh, additionally, Kiryat Joel has water and sewer needs, and uh, some of the less affluent families in Kiryat Joel make uh, claims upon uh, assistance from the, from the Orange County government. So you have you have that, and uh, at the same time, it needs to be recognized that in a lot of areas, uh, Hasidic communities make no claims, and other communities do. So, for example, the criminal justice system is not burdened by the presence of the Kiryat uh, Joel community. The jail, Orange County Jail, is not burdened. The, the community college has only very small enrollments from the Hasidic community in, in, in Orange County. So there's that. And there are, then there are communities where where the Hasidic community has grown relative to other Local governments where the Hasidic community has grown relative to, to other communities, but it's not, governments haven't been created, they've, they've been taken over politically. So we have the East Ramapo School District, and uh, it's effective control by the Hasidic community in, in, that, in that town, in that school district, and uh, 
the controversies that have, have arisen out of the allocation of resources, the failure to collect adequate resources for the public schools and the allocation of resources in ways that disproportionately benefit private school students, many of whom are attending yeshivas. So, and that's been a, a matter for, of attention for the New York State Board of Regents and has been a matter brought to the legislature. And it, it, the whole, in my opinion, the, uh, the community as defined by uh, Hasidic people is a, re- a religious and cultural community. It's not a geographic-based community. It's not inclusive of everybody in a place. It's inclusive of everybody has shared values. And the community as conventionally defined in, in, in New York is inclusive of everybody in a place. So in New Paltz, everybody in New Paltz is part of the New Paltz community, black, white, educated, not educated, farmers, uh, shopkeepers, lawyers, accountants, etc., teachers. So uh, the Hasidic community acts in the interest of its definition of community, which is sometimes confrontational or uh, even uh, even uh, Takes it takes advantage of uh, the non-Hasidic community in the way and the decisions they make, and this creates a lot of fear. It creates confrontation, creates a high level of political mobilization, and creates a high level of conflict. So, the asynchronicity between the way we organize local government and the way the demands being placed upon it by this in-migration and the growth is uh, a continued source of tension and conflict, potential conflict in the Hudson Valley, and is a matter for serious. Uh, Concern and and of course the Hasidic community is is broadly influential in New York State and in statewide elections and uh, so and that influence is brought to bear in the interests of the Hasidic community in the Hudson Valley from time to time as well. So I've heard one of the uh, at the time it was certainly and you referenced it before at the time it was certainly controversial but one of the smarter potential things that was done. Uh, years ago, and a, a solution, potential solution for the conflict in East Ramapo, which has become a statewide conflict or a conflict of statewide concern, was, in fact, the creation of the Curious Joel School District, really to separate the two communities, Curious Joel, from the Monroe-Woodbury School District. And perhaps that's a recipe for a solution, that you just split up East Ramapo into uh, the in, into the private school areas, if you will, and those that utilize the public schools. I mean, isn't there a broken funding formula here with regard to well, a community? Well, essentially okay, the, the, sorry, go ahead. The, 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 no, no, you're, you're uh, smart and informed. I appreciate that. Uh, the the, the, uh, the uh, Joel School District is essentially a special needs school district uh, uh, designed to respond to the special needs of the Hasidic community, of children from the Hasidic community who uh, otherwise would attend yeshiva, but they have developmental disabilities or other needs. And it's a way of bringing public resources to bear in support of those children. And those children are are, are deserving of services. But the definition of, uh, of a public institution that serves only one group and, and doesn't serve the range of, of people who might have be similarly situated with regard to their need is to me uh, problematic and uh, in a in a in a pluralist society uh, creating enclaves where some people govern for themselves and other enclaves where other people govern for themselves creating separation as a solution in a pluralist society with great diversity like New York is not something I think is a desirable uh, approach um, I, I do think that uh, the 
Ramapo school district should be subject to the same expectations and rules as other school districts in New York with regard to transportation of children and and uh, serving children and, and resource allocation and resource collection. And that's simply not been the case in a regulatory in, in the regulation of, of public schools. And uh, I don't think I I, I, I don't think that uh, that. Uh, you know, special needs of a community, if, for example, they want children to be transported um, in gender-segregated manner, then, then the community should pay for that separately. It shouldn't be a public charge. So um, there are some very serious issues about the nature of our society and the expectations we have of people living and working together and in consideration of each other's values that are involved here. And, uh, you know, I'm Jewish, and I'm, I'm informed about uh, these issues, both, both from my religion and my family history and so on. I'm not hostile, and I, uh, but, but uh, I'm troubled by, uh, as I would be troubled by, as I am troubled by the definition of service delivery on the basis of race or ethnicity or, or national origin or any other factor that, that uh, makes a pluralist society uh, look less equitable and less... And less uh, and, and less democratic, in my opinion. So that's my view. Okay, last question for you on the. I know we're going to run out of time, and hopefully we'll have you again uh, very soon to discuss a lot of these issues, because I think that there's a very interesting perspective. Uh, we've had certainly a lot of people discuss the East Brown Post School District, uh, but one of the recipes that the monitor, or I'm sorry, that the, the state education department team has come up with is to set aside seats on the board for public school students, essentially to uh, not allow voters to, or public school parents, uh, to not allow certain voters to have their pick or to not allow uh, certain, certain them to vote for certain seats. I'm not sure what the mechanism would be. Uh, a lot of, right. some of these recommendations seem to fly in the face of go local government and local democracy. Uh, any comment well, on that? Well, you know, I could imagine uh, setting aside uh, seats raises questions, but I can imagine a district-based election system rather than a at-large election system as a potential... Uh, ward ward voting. On. Right, and, and uh, in fact, in, uh, in, in the town of Monroe, that, that was a goal of, the, uh, of, uh, of a local movement uh, that, that felt that they were being subsumed, inevitably subsumed, immediately subsumed, and inevitably in the future subsumed, by different rates of population growth. So they said, okay, give us a district-based system. They lost that referendum in a contended, a very highly contended uh, uh, election. Litigation, by the way, litigation is, is, is endemic to all this stuff. So we end up having judges make decisions rather than elected officials, you know, democratically elected local officials make decisions, which is also a very significant element of this whole, this whole conundrum. So uh, I, I, I think that... Uh, we can find mechanisms that would that would be acceptable and broadly used and uh, assure people a degree of uh, assure people at least that they were had a degree of voice in, in governments that deliver essential services to them and their children. Okay, Dr. Gerald Benjamin from SUNY New Paltz, distinguished professor as well as associate vice president for regional outreach. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Glass, the most informative discussion, and really appreciate your perspective on all these issues. Well, uh, thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure to meet you. Take care.
You too. And uh, this is Spin Class, and we're sponsored by the S4 Group, S4GRP.com. Subscribe to the weekly political newsletter, and it's certainly time to wrap up. But as we do, have to note the passing of Rabbi Ronnie Greenwald. Ronnie Greenwald was a legend uh, with regard to advocacy, uh, working together at the time with Congressman Ben Gilman, who represented Rockland County. Uh, there's so much that Robert Greenwald accomplished, but uh, Ben Gilman was the chairman of the House Foreign Relations Foreign Affairs Committee, and Robert Greenwald was essentially his emissary to Jews who were persecuted worldwide. Jews in certain uh, found themselves in difficult straits, particularly those behind the Iron Curtain. If people out there still remember that uh, a man who was totally selfless, who went around the world helping anybody who needed help. Uh, Ronnie Greenwald's will certainly be remembered fondly within the political world, but within the Jewish world as well. That's it for another Thursday morning here of Political Talk. Hope you enjoyed uh, this special type segment of the show. We're going to move into primary season very, very soon. And we will stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs. 